Good morning. How many of you would like to know we're watching the election results coming in on Tuesday night till 3 a.m. <laughs> Eastern time? Yeah, I, I don't watch TV very much, but uh, there's a few times in the year I'll turn the TV on because something that seems interesting enough to me uh, goes on. And uh, one of the things that uh, impressed me most that night was the convention, uh, it's called Convention Center. Uh, they, they had two. There was one for the Republicans and one for the Democrats, or for Trump and for Hillary. And how subdued the one, uh, the Democratic one was. And uh, caused me to feel a measure of sympathy. You know, I, I don't have a, you know, a, political aim in this, <laughs> so please don't take it as such. But I felt bad for all those very clearly depressed uh, people. And I um, have a picture of, uh, of Hillary. I think that's uh, what her, when she gave her, uh, what do you call that speech? Concession. Concession speech, you know, acknowledging that she lost and how sad she was. And, and many other people were sad. There's actually protests still going on because people are just not willing to accept the results of the election. Uh, and as I understand, I think Sharon told me that uh, Megan told her in, in Megan's school they offered counseling. Right? If somebody you know, is, feels really sad and, and can't handle it, you know, we, have, we have counselors ready to meet with you and to, to help in this situation. And that's what we want to think about today is counseling. We, we, you may not have been particularly saddened by the results of the election, depending on your particular point of view, but uh, the things in your life, I'm sure, that, that trouble you, right? The storms of life, as we call them. Uh, the Hebrews were going through such a storm. They were going through a time of persecution. For those of you who don't know, we're starting through the book of Hebrews. And um, you know, where do we turn for counseling as Christians? <laughs> we turn to the Word of God. What counseling does the Word of God offers us in times of trouble? That would be the, the subject of our message this morning. What counseling does the Word of God offer you in times of trouble? Hebrews uh, chapter 13, sorry, Hebrews chapter 6, it's a 13th message. I have the message number on my my title here, but uh, chapter 6, we'll continue where, where we left off. In fact, we'll go ahead and we'll back up just one verse into uh, Hebrews 6.12, just to get things in context. He says there, do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one Greater he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessings I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold 
of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. What's the first counsel we get from the scripture is to remember God's promises, right? We have that note in Hebrews 12, and uh, we're told that we should imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God makes promises in his word to us, and it would be do us well in times of trouble to remember God's promises. And we start with an example of Abraham in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham. And then he quotes in verse 14 a promise from the Old Testament, saying, surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. So we could find this uh, passage in the Old Testament and turn to it. It would be Genesis chapter 22, where God is making this promise. And it says there, starting at verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Right? God is making a promise. Now, we... Uh, seek to find our own promises in the scripture. This is a promise God made to Abraham. But the wonderful thing is that we inherit the promises that God made uh, to Abraham ourselves. We're told this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So we inherit God's promises to Abraham. They come to us. Now, sometimes, you know, we want to, to think in a particular way how his promises apply to us. So I count here four promises that God made to Abraham, and I, I picked four applications to ourselves. You might find other applications. And you don't have to limit yourself to these because the scriptures are full of promises, right, that we can claim ourselves, but just looking here at God's promises to Abraham. So first, he promises him blessing. Blessing, I will bless you. Well, to bless someone simply means to do them good, right? To do them good. What promises do we have in the scripture that God will do us good? Well, we have one in Romans 8, 28. It says, all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And then it continues and explains what God means by good, right? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
So here I have God's promise to do good in my life, and he tells me what that good is. God is working to make me like Jesus. That's pretty good, right? <laughs> All things work together for good. Then we have his promise to Abraham to multiply him, multiplying. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And we understand this was more than a promise to multiply physical descendants. Certainly God multiplied Abraham's physical descendants. You look at the nation of Israel, numbering some millions of people. Those are direct descendants of Abraham. Uh, but we understand that we are also children of Abraham by faith. Right? Everyone who believes like Abraham believed becomes a son or a child of Abraham. And uh, the promise I, I, I like to connect with this one is that of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, I will build my church. Right? And we think about the fact that God is in the work of saving people. Right? It's, this is God's work. <laughs> and uh, he says he will build it. Right? He will save people. God is working throughout the earth, drawing people to himself. Similar to what we read in Romans 8.28, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Right? God is at work saving people, bringing them to himself. I think that's a wonderful promise. Another we have in uh, Genesis 22, God tells Abraham that your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And uh, in those days, cities had walls, right? And once you control the gate, you control the city. Right? So if, if, uh, if you control somebody's city uh, gate, you control the city, it shows a complete victory. Right? It shows a complete victory. And I'm reminded that we are handed a complete victory in Christ. This is how it says it in Colossians 2.15, describing Jesus' work on the cross. It says that he, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. It's a picture drawn from the days of the Roman Empire when after they defeated a foe, they would take away their weapons and march their helpless army through the streets of Rome and making fun of them, triumphing over them. Complete victory. Someone is completely helpless in your hand. Such is the picture applied to our enemies, and that talks about Satan and demonic powers, right? We're not so interested in defeating people. God loves people. He died for people. But God uh, delivers us from the power of Satan. He gives us victory over sin and death, right? And the victory is so complete, right, that it says that God is triumphing over them in it, in the cross. The cross was so definitive a victory for God over sin that God is triumphing in it. We can triumph in it as well. Finally, in Genesis 22, the last promise it was, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And uh, we live in a, in a very varied community here in, um, in Fremont. Uh, most of my neighbors are Hindus or, or Muslims or Buddhists, uh, different countries of the world. And I'm often at a loss, how do I reach these people for Christ? And uh, it's nice that we have a promise that uh, Christ will be a blessing to every nation on the face of the earth, every, uh, every group of people. And that's repeated in Revelations 5.9. It says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal, 
for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Uh, Sharon and I adopted something that uh, Grant suggested we do, and that's uh, called a prayer walk. We walk around the neighborhood. We have a dog, and uh, so we'll take the dog on a walk around the neighborhood. And while you do it, you can pray, right? And, and kind of as you're walking around the neighborhood, you may be reminded to pray for a particular neighbor or another. And I can say this because my wife is not here, but uh, she always prays for one of the houses as we walk by it because uh, we once met the, na- the neighbors that lived in that house, and uh, the man is from uh, some very, very small people group in India, uh, speaks a particular language, and I forget what it's called now, forgive me, but he said there's only about a thousand people in the world that speak that language. So Sharon claims this verse, Lord, you said out of every tongue, right, you will save people, you know, praying for that person. Right? We talked about it's Christ's work, and yet we can rejoice in the promise that out of every tribe and nation, he will save people. Okay, remembering God's promises, right, that's, that's the first key, uh, first counsel the, the scripture gives us today for uh, the storms of life, remembering God's promises. The next one is we want to consider their immutability, right? The fact that God is, is swearing, he's swearing here. Now, I mentioned uh, a few Sundays ago, maybe it's a few months ago, that uh, when I was little, I used to like superheroes. Anybody here like superheroes? And um, one of the superheroes I liked uh, was Spider-Man. And I don't remember exactly how it came about, but I was probably about, you know, six, eight years old. And I told one of my other six, eight-year-old friends, you know what, I have a secret to tell you. I'm actually Spider-Man. <laughs> and uh, I think my friend doubted me a little bit. So I swore to him, I really am Spider-Man. And because that's a secret, and nobody must know that, I made him swear to me that he won't tell anybody. <laughs> and uh, why am I telling you this? Well, because that's why we swear, right? You know, when, when I realize that people might doubt what I say, and sometimes people have a good reason to doubt what I say, you know, I might swear, right? No, I swear to you it is true. And here in the passage, we have God swearing. Now, God doesn't lie. Right? We don't have a reason to doubt God's word, but God knows that we struggle believing him and his promises. And so he swears for our benefit. Right? If I was to go back to Hebrews 22, he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, before he repeats these promises to Abraham. He wants Abraham to believe what he says. He wants us to believe what we say. Now, there's a, a phrase here. He says, uh, back in Hebrews 13, says, uh, verse 17, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's us, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by note that by two immutable things, the word immutable means something that cannot be changed. Right, something that cannot be changed, immutable. Um, I remember being asked a question once, and I don't know if this is before or after I was saved. Can God make a rock so big 
that he cannot move. I think I had a picture of a rock here, just in case you need a visual. <laughs> Can God make a rock so big that he cannot move? Now, there's a catch to this question, right? Because if you say, no, God can't make a rock so big that he cannot move, then what you're saying is, well, God cannot make a rock so big that he cannot move. There's something God cannot do, right? That's what you're saying, right? But if you say, well, no, yeah, God can make a rock so big he cannot move, well, now there's the other side of the problem. You mean there's something God cannot move? <laughs> right? It's, uh, and yet in this passage, we find a rock that God cannot move. Right? Yes, it is possible for God to make a rock that he cannot move because what? God cannot lie. So once God makes a promise, once God gives his word, he cannot break it. Jesus said, I will build my church. Can he not build his church? No, he cannot. He, he must build his church because he said he will. Right? That's unchangeable truth, right? When God gives us a promise, it's unchangeable. He cannot change what he says. There's the rock that God cannot move. That's why Jesus said, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the Lord till all is fulfilled. God can recreate this universe. He cannot change his words. Right? His promise to you. And so by two immutable things. Why? First, because God said it. And second, because God swore it. Our promises in him are yea and amen. They cannot be changed. Right? We know our promises are secure. Now, to add to it, it doesn't just say that God swore or swears. It says he swore by himself. By myself I have sworn. Now, sometimes when I was a kid, again, trying to convince people of the veracity of my statements, uh, I could perhaps... Promise, you know, if I'm lying to you, I'm going to give you and I'll say something they want. You know, I'll give you a chocolate bar, right? I mean, <laughs> trying to convince them to trust me in what I said. Well, God swore by himself. What will God give if God does not keep his word? Well, he really, he's giving up his Godhead, right? That's effectively what he's saying. By myself, I have sworn. There is nothing greater. If God said, if I don't keep my promise, I'll give you a candy bar, you won't be that impressed. It's very easy for God to give it. But by himself, by his Godhead, God will step down from his throne if he will not keep his word. Okay. Well, the third um, counsel we're getting from the scripture for, for uh, the storms of life is to lay hold of of our hope or the strong consolation, right? God is saying all these things that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. There's a hope that is set before us that God has given to us to comfort us, right? And uh, what is that hope? Well, we could turn to 1 John 3, uh, verse 2. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And this is how I know that's the hope. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What is our hope? 
right? <coughs> so hope is something future, right? It's not something uncertain, right, in the Bible because God promised it by himself, right? It's as certain as certain can be. Right? What's the future event we're looking forward? It says here, uh, beloved, now we are children of God. There's not yet been revealed what we shall be, right? You know what? You're looking at me, and you're seeing a poor representation of what I will one day be. <laughs> it has not yet been revealed what I shall be, right? That's what the passage says. Right? But we know that when he is revealed, who is that talking about? It's talking about Jesus, right? Jesus is coming back, right? Right now, he is, so to speak, hidden, right? The world doesn't see Jesus. But Jesus is coming back. And when he coming, is coming back, that's when he is revealed, right? That's when the world will see him. He says, every eye shall see him, right? Every eye, every person in the world will see God. Now, I would offer to you that not everybody will see him the same way. But it says, we shall be like him. Now, there's a couple of thoughts there. I will be like him in character, praise God, right? He's working in me to make me more like him. That's wonderful, right? But I will also have a different body, right? Because human flesh is not able to see God the way God really is. And, uh, and so in order to see him as he is, I will need new binoculars, <laughs> right? You know, talk about sunglasses, right? Shining in glory. And I think... That when he appears, for unbelievers, he, he will be a being of terrifying light. Right? I don't know how distinguishable he will be. Right? I don't know to what extent they will see the details of his face. I don't think they will. Right? I don't think they will see the marks of the thorns on his brow. I don't think they will. Right? I don't think they'll see the holes in his hands. Right? Or the evidence of, of the spear mark in his side. I don't think they will see that. But you know what? You will. Right? Because we will see him as he is. Right? In full representation. Right? And as we look at those marks of love, we will appreciate anew how much he loves us. Right? And that's the Christian hope. Right? That's God's promise to us. And that's the hope we need to hold on to in those times of trouble. Fourth, and I think that kind of connects there, um, we need to use this hope to steady us during the trials of life. Right? We, we have a choice, right? Do I remember? Do I go back to God's promises? Do I remember their certainty, their immutability? Do I think of the hope that's included? My future, what it will be like. Right? In times of trouble, I have a choice. Do I go back to those things to steady me? Or do I forget about them, choose not to think about them, and let the storms of life dash me to pieces? It talks here about an anchor, Right? It says, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul. What do you need an anchor for? I have a picture. <coughs> That's what you need an anchor for. 
right? So when, when the storm comes, right? So I, I went sailing with, uh, with Johnny O maybe a few months ago. And uh, we had, uh, he has his, his, his boat and we put up the sails, right? And we try to catch the wind. And if we do a good job, you know, we can use the wind to steer us and, and go places. But when a storm comes, what would you do, Johnny? Would you leave the, the, the sails up? You bring them down, right? And I didn't ask you, do you have an anchor in your boat? Okay, he has an anchor in his boat. We would put down the anchor, right? Because it's the anchor that will keep us safe in a storm. I'm not going to try to go anywhere, right? <laughs> I'm trying to stay put. Because if I am go anywhere in a storm, who knows what I'll hit, right? I might end up in the same condition as that boat. Now, uh, an anchor, you want certain things here. It says, uh, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. I have a picture of, of what anchors can look like. I don't know if you can tell that white thing in the middle. That's a man. Each of those chain links weighs 500 pounds. And, uh, you know, why do you need such a strong anchor and chain? Well, because you want it to hold, right? If the wind blows hard enough, now, granted, this is not for a small boat, right? Johnny, I don't think this will fit in your boat. <laughs> but uh, it, it's for large container ships. But uh, you want it to hold, right? If the wind blows at 60, 70, 90, 100 miles an hour, I want the anchor to hold. And uh, <clears throat> I want it to also reach the bottom. I mean, let's say this thing is 500 feet long. And I'm in an ocean at a depth of a mile. It's not going to do me any good, right? I need it to go all the way down to the ground. And that's why it says we want it, uh, our anchor, um, want it to be sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil. What's our anchor? Well, our anchor is really the word of God. Can the word of God be broken? Cannot be broken. How far does it reach? Well, it reaches all the way to the creator of the universe. Right? He said he will step off his throne <laughs> if he doesn't keep his word. Right? You don't get deeper than that, more sure than that. Okay, the last uh, counsel we get here in this passage for times of trouble uh, connects with the theme verse of our, of our, our book, I know you guys thought I forgot, but I didn't forget. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Anybody feels comfortable saying it? Okay, so we can say it uh, together if uh, Jake can find it very quickly. Hold on, all right. I give Jake a hard time all the time. All right, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Lift that up. Looking unto Jesus. Right? I mean, that's the key for the storms of life. 
In this passage, we see Jesus represented in two ways. First, as the forerunner, right? It says, where the forerunner has entered for us. Well, Jesus, where did he enter? He entered the throne room of God, looking unto Jesus, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus entered the throne room of God. Now, the word forerunner implies that he is the first and others will follow. Uh, it's used uh, sometimes as a, uh, to represent a scout. So let's say I was in the uh, Roman, uh, a neighbor of the Roman Empire. I wasn't part of the Roman Empire yet, but uh, perhaps I lived right next door. And then one day I see this. Then one day I see this. <laughs> Right, a Roman soldier, and uh, I realize this is a scout. Right, what what do I realize I will see next? The Roman army. <laughs> okay, he is a forerunner of what's coming. Well, Jesus is a forerunner too. He is the first man to enter heaven. Right. Now, we recognize Jesus is also the Son of God, but he is also man. And he is a representative of mankind as he enters the throne room of God. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of of those who have fallen asleep. Again, the word first fruits represent something will follow. He is the first one. Others will follow. Jesus rose from the dead. I will rise from the dead too because he did. He entered the throne room of heaven. I will enter the throne room of heaven too. Why? Because Jesus did. Right. Second, uh, we see Jesus here as the high priest, and we know that that's one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews, representing Jesus as a priest, in fact, uh, we're kind of completed the circle here. I don't know if you remembered, in the end of chapter 5, as chapter 5 was ended, it presented Jesus as a priest, and then he kind of took a detour to talk about the spiritual condition of the Hebrews. Well, now he's finally coming back to it, and he's presenting Jesus to us as the high priest. And that's important, because I have to ask, by what right will I enter the throne room of God? Jesus, we would recognize, had such a right, whether as God or being the perfect man. Right? It's not strange to see Jesus there. But what will allow me to enter the throne room of God without being blasted? It's not something that I can do. I can't make myself acceptable to God, but it's something that Jesus can do. Right? And that's what it means. Him being as our high priest, he is the one that makes me right with God. Right? Uh, the priest is a mediator between God and the people. So Jesus is my mediator with God. And as long as Jesus does his job right, I can walk into the throne room of heaven. Right? I need to trust what Jesus did for me, not anything that I did. I have a, a hymn I wanted to read here. It's not quite in closing because I have one more point after I, if 
but uh, I, I really like this hymn. I think it does a good job presenting Jesus both as man and as high priest. By faith, I look where Christ has gone and see upon his Father's throne a man with glory crowned. His brow is marred, and on his side once flowed the cleansing crimson tide, the marks of love are found. I look again, and now I see that blessed man engage for me his hands uplifted high. Before the throne of God he pleads, God's great high priest, he intercedes, and so preserves me now. What love! He washed my sins away. Thus boldness in the judgment day for me there doth remain. What grace! Now occupied with me, he wills I should his glory see when he returns again. That's by C.E. Pelgo. So, last words here. We just want to remember that this was an example, right? God made a promise to Abraham. And uh, we're told, so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Right? Abraham didn't have God's promises answered immediately. He uh, didn't uh, see uh, God's promise answered the day later. He didn't see it answered a week later. He didn't see it fulfilled a month later or a year or ten or a hundred. He had to wait 2,000 years to see God's promise answered. And so we have for us in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So there Abraham, 2,000 years later, sees God's promise to him fulfilled. And uh, I don't think we have to wait 2,000 years to see God's promises to us fulfilled, but we have to wait, right? The storms of life may endure for a while. That anchor has to hold. <laughs> Lay hold of the hope set before you. And uh, God will bring you through. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the words uh, that you <clears throat> give us this morning, Lord. You care about each one of us. You desire each one of us to be consoled in the midst of our troubles. And uh, you've given us so many promises to lay hold of in your word. Pray for each one of us today who's going through trials, that you help us find that word of promise to us that would encourage our souls today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.